Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode covers Twin Peaks Season 3, Part 13, Out of the Town. So what happens outside of Twin Peaks in this episode? That includes Las Vegas, that includes Mr. C, but nothing about South Dakota. That's not in this episode. The Mr. C storyline, we finally get uh, him back in the picture. Evil Cooper, Mr. C, the doppelganger, to call him what you will. He pulls up into a warehouse somewhere in Montana. Ray is watching him, and he's with a character named Renzo, this bald, tough-looking guy. They're watching him on this gigantic flat screen, which I've heard somebody say is actually an impossibility, like, in terms of technology. Like, I guess you can project something on a screen that size, but there's no way that you could actually run something through like a monitor screen. I, I don't know enough about technology to know if that's true, but it does seem kind of impossible. And uh, it's one of the really cool examples in the show of how Lynch, rather than running from the technology and being like, oh no, this is a show where we don't have cell phones and things like that. It's gonna remain in the past. He actually embraces technology quite a lot in this series and does a lot of unusual fun things with it. Mr. C is told by Muddy, who's another gang member, that in order to get Ray and get the information he wants from him and presumably kill him, he has to come through this gang first, this whole gang that's gathered there to glare at at, uh, Mr. C. And the way that you get through this gang is you arm wrestle the leader. If he wins, you're now, he he owns you. He's your boss. You got to stay there. If you win, you know, you get to become the leader. And uh, Mr. C said, I don't want to be the leader. I just want Ray, basically. So they make this deal. He arm wrestles Renzo. And it seems like Renzo's going to win. And then he just effortlessly pushes his, his arm back. And he keeps doing this and says, it's more comfortable down here. And forces the hand down and up. And just plays games with him. And it's... It's like kind of terrifying, like he's realizing suddenly Renzo, he actually has no power over this guy. And then Cooper not only tears his arm down, he punches him so hard in the face that his face just implodes. You know, a very Lynchian image as he falls to the ground. And they're all shocked. They call him the new boss. He asks for everybody's cell phones. And then he shoots Ray in the leg, asks him a bunch of questions and finally kills him. Although there's one moment before that where one member, one gang member stays behind. <laughs> really, so everybody there, they're stereotypical toughs. You know, they got the scraggly hair, they got the biker vests, and all muscular. And it's just one dweeby looking guy in a sweater. And so when everyone else leaves, he stays behind and he just asks Mr. C, do you need any money? I have to wonder if he, I mean, it must have been in the script because to even costume that guy and have him there. But I, I like to think, what if he was just like a crew member or something and Lynch was like, hey, you, get in the scene and then gave him that line because it seemed like he had to justify him being there. I think he's listed as an accountant in the credits. No idea if any of that's true. More likely it was in the script. It was something Lynch and Frost came up with. Uh, but it's just very funny. <laughs> it's very random. So Ray gives uh, Mr. C the coordinates before he kills him, and he leaves. And as I mentioned, the Twin Peaks section, uh, Richard Horn is there, and he sees him leave. In this sequence, the color scheme and the texture is, like, so bleak, but it's not exactly washed out. Like, it's very sharp. I can't put my finger on it exactly, but there's just an aesthetic that's throughout the return, and this is, like, the quintessential scene of it. It reminds me so much of this tweet where somebody says, old Twin Peaks aesthetic versus new Twin Peaks aesthetic and they have a picture of like a TV in this sort of 
wooded room looks very cozy and it's like an old tv and then the other one is like a flat screen in like a metallic stand against like a white wall and this very plain floor yeah there is that aesthetic to the new twin peaks at times it does dip into the old aesthetic sometimes but even then it's got a whole harsher colder feel and of course a lot of that is digital i think Lynch just embraced the fact he was shooting on digital and retooled a lot of the look of the show to fit that. But I don't know, there's just something really appealing about this aesthetic to me, and appealing in a sort of a perverse way because it is kind of like drab, yet it's so striking too at the same time. I think as well, it's brilliant to make the contrast of Mr. C, and you really notice it in this episode where we have all the Dougie footage front-loaded and then all the Mr. C footage and then we go back to Dougie. The contrast is not Evil Cooper versus the good Cooper we know from the original series. Throughout the show it's Evil Cooper juxtaposed with Dougie Cooper, this like very overly simplistic good Cooper. And what I like about that is I've always been intrigued by this idea of a split. This was John Thorne's pet theory for a long time that in the finale of season two, we aren't seeing like an evil Cooper emerge and defeat the good Cooper and race out of the lodge and leave the regular Cooper that we know throughout the, the series in the lodge. He concludes that actually the Cooper we know from the whole show slits in half. So the one who remains in the lodge is not like that Cooper continuous. It's actually only the good half of him. Well, the bad half goes out. Now that's a nice idea. I don't think it's really borne out by what we see of the Cooper in the Lodge in season three, but Lynch functionally effectively does make it that way by having him become Dougie Cooper for most of the series. So even if he doesn't buy the idea that the Cooper who remained in the Lodge was just the good half, we do get to see the good and the bad very sharply uh, uh, you know, juxtaposed in that way. It's like a way of fulfilling that theory, even though the show itself kind of defies that theory in its literal sense. Watching the way Mr. C acts in this scene, how he kind of challenges Renzo, it's like impassionately, he doesn't relish it at all. There's no bob in this. It's just all gritting his teeth and being ruthless. There's no passion at all in Mr. C. People have talked about this a lot. I think that's an open question. We'll, we'll save some of that for the lodge lore section, but I think it's worth noting. And it's also worth noting that when we do occasionally see flickers of like a Bob type sadism, even though it's much more muted and restrained and cold, are in the scenes where Mr. C is violent against women. When he's violent against men, it's more of this like alpha dog competition where it's like, who can be colder and more ruthless. But when he's cruel to women, I'm thinking particularly of the scene where he kind of mocks Diane through the glass. And then, of course, the scene in part two where he kills Daria. In both of those scenes, there's a cold in the shirt, but there's a cruelty too and, and kind of a lingering in the cruelty that we don't exactly see uh, the same way here. Now, we do see him mocking Renzo and being cruel in the way he pulls his arm back and forth and just toys with him and plays with him but his expression is just bitter and cold and and that's kind of a difference here i think there's no toying with it or playing with it in a way that seems like he's enjoying it in any sense something i realized only recently is that 
people had been saying that the actor from Wild at Heart is in this scene. And for some reason, I thought they meant playing Muddy. And I thought, wow, that guy changed a lot in 20 years. But actually, no, it's somebody with a beard. And the person they're talking about is the guy who sits with John Lurie at that like courtyard in the Texas motel in Wild at Heart. Got a little bit of a lazy eye, I think. And they're talking to... Uh, Nicholas Cage and Laura Dern. That guy, if you look closely, he's there with a beard in the crowd of the gang. So there's a, a, a Lynchian veteran in that in that scene, in that sequence. Just want to pop in from the future and say uh, that previous part was recorded in 2018. I'm recording an update in 2022 to say, I have no idea where I got that notion. That is not the guy with the lazy eye from Wild at Heart. I looked up that actor. He's not in Twin Peaks. And Muddy was actually in Wild at Heart. He was a different character in that scene. I watched Wild at Heart again a few years after recording that uh, originally for patrons and noticed, and I was like, oh, he is in this movie, and it does look a lot like him. Like, yeah, he's got whiter hair in Twin Peaks, but you can see it's clearly the same actor. So I don't don't know what, that was a very convoluted train of thought, but I left it in here just because I thought it was kind of interesting that I went down that rabbit hole and uh, was wrong there. There was a thread on the Welcome to Twin Peaks message board Wondering, did Renzo seal his own fate by mocking Cooper, punching him in the back of the head and saying, you know, because Cooper had said earlier, what is this, kindergarten? In this just disgusted way when they mentioned the arm wrestling uh, contest to him. And so this seemingly pisses Renzo off and later he punches him in the back of the head and says, yeah, this is how we do it in kindergarten or something like that. This user on this forum wondered... Is that why Mr. C punches his face in? Like, would he have let him live otherwise? Because it doesn't seem like he does things excessively. If he can win another way, he'll do it that way, like with the warden or something. He just does what he needs to do to get by. And yet, in this case, he actually kills Renzo. And that's an interesting question. It's interesting something to consider. I think Mr. C's motivations are always fascinating to parse out because they're often kind of ambiguous. And speaking of motivations, I have to wonder why Ray goes ahead and and tells Cooper everything. Maybe just because he's trying to mislead him, but it's like, why? But then why does he say right before, like, why would I tell you something? Why would I give you this information if, you know, if you're just going to kill me? So I'm not exactly sure what's going on there. It's a weird series of lines, basically. Also, uh, it's interesting, he refers to Hastings' pretty secretary, Betty, and this reminds me that people thought that Hastings' secretary was going to be Betty Briggs, because I think they call her Betty in an earlier episode. Of course, she turned out to have another role in the show altogether. The Las Vegas story section, with Dougie in the office... We see him and the Mitchums and Candy Sandy Mandy bringing presents to Bushnell. After their long night out, they've just been partying all night to celebrate uh, the 30 million coming back to them. Later on, we see Janie dropping uh, Dougie Cooper off at the office as well, which is confusing uh, time-wise. And I'll mention this in the order of events section that it seems like this is on a Saturday. But, you know, maybe they just are very professional. You know, they're, they're, they work six days a week, uh, rough workplace. Bushnell's really cavalier about the fact that Dougie Cooper's been hanging out with the Mitchums all night. Like, he wasn't worried at all. He knew everything would go fine. But Dougie almost died. Like, it's like he almost set his employee up to be killed. And it's kind of funny because everything works out, we don't think about it. But it's like, wait a second. Like, that was really... um, What was he thinking? Like, he thought that they were just gonna, you know, accept the 
the check without any questions, but it's like, how did he know they wouldn't just kill him first or something? I, I don't know. It seems like he was really less worried about all of that than he should have been. Later on, when Dougie Cooper comes into the office, it's funny, we see another businessman help him. Like, he just walks into the glass and bangs his head. And we see another businessman walk up and help him through the door. It's just some stranger who, my assumption was this guy doesn't even know who he is, but it's yet everyone always has this instinct to, like, help Dougie Cooper. For Dougie's home life, we see a delivery of a nice new car, and that's from the Mitchums, and they also deliver a jungle gym and uh, build it in the backyard so that Sunny Jim will have something to play on. Uh, Janie watches all of this unfold. She doesn't know yet what happened with the Mitchums and Dougie, and it's just like, what's going on? But she's thrilled. And her and Dougie Cooper watch Sunny Jim running around in this jungle gym uh, at night and they're just so happy this is a bizarre scene this is when they play the swan lake excerpt the activity the boy's activity feels really forced like it doesn't look like he's having fun it looks like he's like gotta run through this okay go swing across this okay gotta go go up the slide now i'm gonna climb this okay it's just like it's so silly that it works but like as a portrait of a kid having fun on a set maybe the kid really was but just the way it reads visually is like very artificial and it's just such a weird gym set, too. It's just this, like, sort of, not exactly garish. Like, here's the thing with Vegas. It's like, nothing there is truly garish, but it's just not that, like, appealing in a way. Like, it's just this blocks of color all kind of arranged. Like, here you are. Here's your gym set. Like, I don't know. I, I can't put my finger on what it is exactly, but it's just a weird scene in a weird gym set that it's, like, feels like it just comes with a big exclamation point, a big sign that says, like, this is a happy childhood thing. Yes, it is. Believe me. And you just look at it like, I don't quite believe you. <laughs> People also thought watching this, something really bad was going to happen to Sonny Jim. Like, it just seemed like it was foreboding in a way. People thought this throughout the whole series. Uh, Janie loves Dougie, but she's always citing, like, material gifts. I mean, and, and the sexual attraction, I guess. But it's funny, it goes along with what I was talking about the other episode with uh, Lady Slots Addict and how Cooper saved her life by helping her win this money and now all the people who ignored her are back in her life. Like The whole message of this Vegas storyline, if you take it at face value, is like super materialist and super kind of shallow. This idea that, you know, if you just, you're just going to go through life, you're going to win these things and then people are going to like you. And it's it's kind of... I, I don't know, people talk a lot about the sincerity of it, and I think there is just kind of this warmth and this sincerity and good cheer to all of it. And yet, there is, you know, when you dig into it, it's a kind of a weird message. So much of the Dougie material plays like parody, but you get the sense that Lynch and the material itself buys into it. It buys into these values as well. There's shades of blue velvet in that, where people just took it as this total raucous send-up of Reagan's America, when in fact Lynch actually did kind of believe in these values and this innocence that he was showing, as well as the darkness. There's nothing in the debt subplot this episode. In the assassination plot, we see the Fusco's detectives who get uh, Dougie Cooper's prints back from their friend at the FBI, traces him to a prison escape, says he was an FBI agent for years, and they just laugh, like, oh, that's ridiculous. And they throw the paperwork in the trash, just crumple it up and have a little contest to see who can get it in the basket. There's this weird screaming prisoner in the back, which for some reason reminds me of Hill Street Blues, where which Frost, Mark Frost obviously wrote for for years, where you would just have all these people kind of hustled into the police station. Everyone's bustling around and moving, and they're screaming at the cops, and they're like... You know, just all this 
all this activity going on. But in this case, it's just way in the background. You just hear the person screaming and they sit there in their comfortable little office and just wait for it to be over more or less. And uh, another uh, bit we see related to the assassination plot is Hutch and Chantel. They're driving through Utah discussing Mormons. <laughs> That's what the topic of conversation. Jennifer Jason Lee and... Uh, Tim Roth, they got Lynch to shoot more material for these characters than was written. Like, they just kept lobbying him, like, we want more scenes, we want more scenes. And I think it just had so much fun working with them that they got all these little throwaway scenes where they're just talking and philosophizing and whatever. And this is also a moment where they've already traveled through several different storylines. They were originally part of, like, the Mr. C storyline. They're still obviously connected to Mr. C, but they're now within the sphere. They're entering the sphere of, like, the Vegas location, and specifically like the assassination of Dougie Cooper. They traveled to South Dakota. They were in that storyline to uh, kill the warden in Yankton. So it's like they're traveling through these different parts of the story. And I think so far they're really the only characters do that that I can think of where they're kind of crossing the bridge between these different story sections. Now, most of the assassination plot in this episode has to do with Anthony. This is the co-worker that's at uh, Dougie Cooper's office, and he sees him coming back from his night out on the town, and he freaks out, and he calls Duncan Todd and says, the Mitchums didn't kill him. He was brought on to try and get the Mitchums and Dougie to see themselves as enemies, and it didn't work. And so now Duncan says, you're the one who has to kill him. You figure it out. So Anthony goes to these corrupt cops, one of whom is played in a major surprise by uh, John Savage of, you know, Deer Hunter fame and all these other movies over the years, who has utter contempt for Anthony and is like, I'll get you some poison, whatever, get out of my face, I can't stand you. So Anthony, the next morning, tries to poison Cooper in the lobby of the office. Buys him a cup of coffee, pours the poison in when he's not looking, and then Cooper comes out and he looks at what appears to be some dandruff on Anthony's shoulder and he starts massaging it and this just breaks Anthony he starts crying and he says I'm sorry I'm sorry he runs out with the coffee pours it out and later just confesses everything to uh, Bushnell and before that he confesses it to Dougie Cooper himself who of course is just taking it in as passively as he always does and uh, with the Mitchums no longer part of the assassination plot the only thing we get with the Mitchums this episode is them running in to the office in the conga line and giving Bushnell presents and just praising Dougie to the, you know, to the hilt. It's just a fun scene with them. There's nothing with the Great Northern Key in this episode, though. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also support this work on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Tomorrow's episode will cover part 13 in the town, so looking at what happens in Twin Peaks in this episode.